Well, this morning, this morning, I want to start with something that's near and dear to all of our hearts, which is, of course, NBA basketball, I'm sure. Yeah, I can tell. I can tell. You guys look like a basketball crowd. You look good. All right. Well, I remember back um, uh, in the year 2010. I know you know it well. Of course, you know what I'm talking about in the NBA when LeBron James got traded from Cleveland to Miami. It was a huge deal. LeBron James is clearly the best player in the game right now. And when he moved from his hometown of Cleveland to Miami, the world went nuts. People were upset. LeBron James joined a hot Miami team. They already had two of the biggest stars. They had Chris Bosh and they had Dwayne Wade already. And with LeBron LeBron, LeBron, <laughs> LeBron, John, LeBron James uh, joining the team, the Miami Heat had three of the top ten paid NBA players on their team. They called the Miami Heat and they called them the big three. And everybody thought and knew that Miami Heat was going to win it all. They had an incredible season. They had an incredible postseason. They swept teams in the, in the playoffs. And then they came up against the Dallas Mavericks in the finals. Everybody thought that Miami would just wipe the floor with Dallas because Dallas had no stars. They had no incredible number one players. They had no all-stars on their team. They called it the Dallas Surprise. Even though Miami had three of the top ten players on their team, they had LeBron James, they had the golden child, Dallas came back and defeated them and won against this all-star team. What happened? All the sportscasters and announcers, they lost their minds trying to figure out why, why did Dallas win? They thought to themselves, you know, Miami did have all the stars, but they did a lot of trading. They did a lot of shifting around of team to get that all-star team. And eventually, you know, Miami did go on to win the next year's finals and the next year's after that. But that year, even though they had all the all-stars, they were missing something that Dallas had. Dallas had chemistry. Their players knew each other. There weren't a bunch of trades that year in Dallas's uh, team. They knew one another. They trusted each other. They knew how each other would react to the ball. They had what Miami did not have, which is chemistry. Mark Dunkelman, in his book, The Vanishing Neighbor, says this. He says that chemistry, team chemistry, is known by another term, community. Community. They had community. That's what we're talking about in our sermon series. We're called the art of neighboring. This idea that Jesus doesn't just want you to feel nicely towards everyone. He wants you to actually love your neighbor. Last week we were in the story of the Good Samaritan and a legal expert tries to challenge Jesus and says, what do I got to do to get into heaven? Jesus says, you know, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And the legal expert says, and who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, this is your neighbor. It's the person that's on the road with you. It's the person that you come alongside of. It's the person that you see on the road, the person that's in your way. And this is what love is. 
sacrificially giving your time, sacrificially giving your resource for the benefit of that neighbor. Jesus is not calling us to just feel nicely towards everybody. Jesus is calling us to love our neighbor, to create community, to get to know one another, right? The lack of chemistry, the lack of community creates suspicion. Without chemistry, without community, you get suspicious of people. This is true on the basketball court. Some hotshot joins your team, you don't know who they are, and you immediately think to yourself, this guy's a showboater, this guy's a ball hog, right? This happens in our neighborhood. Somebody comes over to your house with a plate of cookies, what do they want? Like, what are they up to? What do they want from me? Without community, without chemistry, suspicion seeps into our neighborhoods, into our relationships. This is certainly what was going on with Jesus and the blind man. Think about this. Go back into the story a little bit. Jesus and his disciples are traveling along. Jesus is doing his ministry. They come across a blind man. They come across a guy who has no community. They come across a guy who, who doesn't have friends. In fact, the disciples aren't even interested in talking to the blind man. They want to talk about the blind man. And so they say, Jesus, let's talk about this guy. Let's use him as a prop for our theological conversation. Let's use him and discuss what God is really up to. So Jesus, who sinned so this, that this guy is blind, his parents or, or himself? And Jesus, you can tell, is frustrated with this question. He's like, no, 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 he's a human being. He is flesh and bone. He is a beloved child of God. We're not just going to use him as a jumping off point for our conversation. This didn't happen for any of those reasons. But we are in his way. God put him in our way so that something amazing can happen. And so Jesus turns to the blind man. He gets down on the ground. This man who's been born blind, who has not been able to have a job, has, not, has resigned himself to a life of begging, Jesus bends down to him. He makes some mud from the ground, spits in the mud, spits in the dirt, makes mud. Next thing you know, he's rubbing it on the blind guy's eyes (laughs) as if he didn't have enough problems already, right? He rubs it into the blind man's face and Jesus says to the blind man, I want you to go down this street. I want you to go wash in the well of Siloam. I want you to go down the blind man has nothing to lose. Goes down, washes his face, opens his eyes, and the first time he understands what people mean by the word color. For the first time, he can see his own hands, his feet, he can see the ground. For the first time in his life, He can do the things that he heard other people doing. And I imagine that he starts to get some hope. He starts to dream, I can be part of society now. I can be with people. I can have a job. I can be useful. And it hits him, I could get married. I could have a family. 
somebody can love me, I can have a life. And I imagine this wave of feelings and this wave of joy comes over him as he starts to dream about what his life will be like off of the ground, in a community, having a job, in a relationship, in a marriage. And he can't contain his joy. I imagine it. And he goes back to his corner. He goes back to his community. He goes back to the place that he was used to. And he starts to tell people, look, I can see. But there was no community chemistry. And he was greeted with suspicion. Verse 8 says this, his neighbor, the man's neighbors, and those who used to see him when he was a beggar said, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is. And others said, no, it's someone who looks like him. But the man said to, to them, yes, it's me. And so then they asked him, how are you able to see then? And he says, the man, they called Jesus. He, he made some mud, put it on my eyes, and now I can see. And they said to him, where is this man? And the man said, I don't know. And can you see, can you feel the excitement deflate as a miracle happened in his life, but his neighbors only met him with suspicion? They didn't know him well enough. They didn't know him well enough to celebrate with him. A miracle happened in his life, but because they didn't know him, because they didn't love him, they couldn't even be sure that it was really him. And as he's trying to explain himself, they cast suspicion, they cast doubt on his miracle. And the hopes of being part of a community, the hopes of being loved, the hopes of being useful, started to fade. So much so, the, the community had so much suspicion of this man that they actually brought him to trial. They brought him in front of the religious leaders, and they say, this guy says that he was blind, but <laughs> look at him, he can see. Is he lying or what? What's more, he says he was healed on the Sabbath day, and you know we can't have any healing on the Sabbath day. This man is brought to trial because he's having a miracle? Because there's no community. The community says, we don't know him. Go get his parents. His parents come, and they're afraid. They're afraid. Why did they put our son on trial? Do you see all the mistrust that's happening in the community? And they say, hey, is this your son? And they go, well, he looks like our son. <laughs> um, was he blind? Yeah, he was blind. And we don't know how he can see now. He's old enough. Ask him. The blind man still has courage. He says, look, I don't know. I don't know if this Jesus was a sinner. I don't know if he's a bad guy or a good guy. This is it. This is what I know. I was blind, but now I see. That's it. What do the Pharisees do? They throw a party. They throw a parade. They celebrate that one in their community has come to new life. No. They send him out alone. Lack of community chemistry leads to suspicion, and suspicion leads to loneliness. They put him out there 
by himself. His community is not the only kind of community that is fractured, that's disconnected, that has lost its chemistry. Our neighborhoods in our time, our American culture, we have disconnected communities, we have disconnected neighborhoods, we lack chemistry in our neighborhoods, and it creates suspicion. We're not sure about our neighbors, we're not sure about what they're doing over there. What, are they safe? Are they good or not? While you're being suspicious of your neighbors, you can bet your neighbors are being suspicious of you, right? Who are you? And are you safe? And suspicion leads to loneliness. And more than ever, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, we are lonely. We are lonely. How did this happen? How did this happen? I wrote in the What's Happening some of my ideas. I think sometimes we think um, we got to this lonely place, this place of suspicion in our communities because of technology and the internet and smartphones. And if we just got rid of smartphones, we would all start hanging out with our neighbors again, right? I don't think so. I think the problem goes further back. I blame high school and cars. (laughs) But if you think about it, high school became public and mandatory in the 20s and 30s. Cars kind of became widespread at the same time. What did high school and cars do to our communities? Because young people could go to high school and learn about a variety of topics and choose a different career, no longer were they forced to simply apprentice with their parents or their adult neighbors and learn those jobs and do those jobs. Now, because of high school, they were able to go out into the world and learn about anything and choose a new career path for them. Uh, Because of cars and high school, um, no longer were young people destined to marry one of the five people that lived on their block, right? (laughs) Now, they could marry and date somebody across town. They could date somebody in a different town. Because of automobiles and because of high school, um, Opportunity for education, careers, relationships exploded in every direction. And the result was unparalleled prosperity. We prospered. It was a good thing. But what did we lose? We lost a little bit of chemistry. We lost a little bit of the ability to be in our neighborhoods and to know our neighbors. I bring this up not to say we got to go back, like, throw away your cars, keep your kids out of school. That's not what I'm saying, okay? (laughs) Technology is going one direction, and we aren't going to build community chemistry by getting rid of technology. The disconnect we feel in our neighborhoods and our communities is 100 years in the making, and we're not going to solve all of our problems by just simply getting rid of our smartphones. What will solve our problems? What will create community? It's when people like you and I take up this lost but fundamental human practice of turning a stranger into a friend. Why don't we do this anymore? Mark Dunkelman in his um, book, The Vanishing Neighbor, says that uh, we have three rings or circles of relationships. We have an inner circle, we have a middle circle, and an outer circle. Our inner circles are, think about just all the people that you would kiss on the cheek, 
all the people that you would hug. These are your inner circle people, your family, your parents, your kids, your spouses. These are your inner circle relationships. These are the people that are most important to you. With the rise of technology, you can hang out or you can communicate with your inner circle almost as often as you want. If you have adult children today, I'm willing to bet that you are in contact with your adult children way more than your parents were in contact with their parents when they were adults, right? Because we have ongoing text messages, we have ongoing conversation, we have access through technology to our inner circle almost any time we want it. Outer circle relationships are those relationships that you connect with people based on a topic or a shared interest. You might come together for a meeting, maybe it's a political thing, and you come together because you, you agree on the same politics, and so you come together for a meeting, you do a little rah, 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 and then you go home to each other's homes, and you don't connect outside of that shared interest. It might be an activity, it might be like quilting, it might be um, some sort of shared interest that you can connect with over one topic and then walk away from. Technology has also increased the opportunities for you to connect with people that, um, that like your shared topic. For instance, uh, I love comic books. And thanks to the internet, uh, I don't have to have all my comic book conversations with just my wife, right? <laughs> <laughs> But I can go online and I can find somebody that also likes comic books and we can talk about this comic book thing and then I can get off the internet and not pay attention to that person ever again, right? Those, that's an outer ring relationship and that's nice to have. Middle ring relationships are those relationships that you build, that you create when you come into contact with acquaintances on a regular basis so that they become friends. These are people that you did not choose. These are people that by circumstance you come into contact with regularly and you become friends. Churches is a place where middle ring relationships happen. Bowling clubs <laughs> is a place where middle ring relationships happen, right? With the advancement of technology, because we get our outer ring relationships taken care of, more often, and because our inner ring relationship needs are met regularly, we've ignored middle ring relationships. We've ignored spaces where acquaintances and strangers can become friends. Community is created in the middle ring. That's where we learn how to become friends. That's where we learn to turn a stranger into a friend. Church this is what Christ calls us to do, right? In, in Ephesians, uh, ch uh, uh, what chapter is that? Chapter, let me get my notes up here. Chapter two, thank you. <laughs> Loving your neighbor means turning strangers into friends, creating community. Ephesians chapter two, Paul says to us, once you were strangers, you were a stranger. We were all strangers, but by the grace of God, by the grace of God and the work of Christ on the cross, you have been brought near, you have been brought into a people. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you were a stranger, now you are family. Once you were alone, now you are not alone. God understands 
that this is how we're going to change the world through relationships, through love, by creating community. This is what Christ does, and this is what the work of the church is. Paul tells us in Romans 12 to invite strangers into your home. This was a spiritual practice for Christians to go and find strangers, invite them into your home to understand that, my goodness, they're just as human as I am. They have the same needs as I have. That this is how we build community, that this is how we love our neighbors. That, that blind man was left out. He had no middle ring relationships. He, even though now he was seeing, he had the best thing that's ever happened to him happen, and he had no one to celebrate. He was utterly alone. And that's not where the story ends. Jesus doesn't leave anyone alone. He goes and he finds the blind man. He says, hey, look, what's happened to you? He says, there was this guy. He's like, everybody's been asking me that question today. There was this guy, and he made mud on the ground, and he put it in my eyes, and I used to be blind, and now I see. And Jesus says, that was me. I did that. I believe you, and I am celebrating with you. Christ never leaves anyone alone. The idea that a, a lonely Christian, it should be an oxymoron. There should be no lonely Christians. We are called to let people know that you are not alone, that you are mine and I am yours, that we are a church and a community together. If you have something that you're celebrating, if you have something amazing happen in your life, you are not alone. We are celebrating with you. I won't meet you with suspicion. And church, there are miracles happening in your neighborhood. There are miracles happening on your streets. Your neighbors are experiencing life-changing moments, and they don't know who they can share it with. They don't know who they can trust. God needs you to open those doors. God needs you to build those relationships so that those people who are celebrating know that they are not alone in their celebration and they can praise God with you. This is the work of Christ. Christ is not content to leave us in our loneliness and so sends us to bind up the lonely and to welcome them into the family. What do we do with this message? I got a couple of action steps. I like to end things with some action steps. On the walls, you'll find maps near our church. And last week, I had everybody put a pin where they lived and prayed for their neighborhood. Um, this, this previous week, or this last week, we, uh, we made all the maps match. So all the pins from both services are on all the maps. So you can see everybody from last week and everybody this week who puts a pin in the map. The map closest to me is, is zoomed in closer to the church in the neighborhood. Um, and then the map uh, towards the back is zoomed out to kind of the wider Portland area. If you and I would encourage you to find your place on the map. If you weren't here last week and didn't get a chance to put, your, put a pin where you live, I encourage you to do that. And then take a moment to look at the people who worship at this church who are in your neighborhood. Who are in your neighborhood. I'm willing to bet that you'll find someone close by. Yeah? 
And, um, and as we think about what does it mean to, how, how do we turn strangers into friends, the church, this community, is a perfect place to practice that, right? Here we are. We are people. We don't know each other all that well, but we've been brought together by a common purpose. God has put us in each other's way. And so let's practice turning strangers into friends. First thing to do is pray for the pins near your pin. Just pray for your neighbors. Pray for the people that are close to you. Pray for the people that are in your way. Um, secondly, be visible in your neighborhood. Prayer walk your neighborhood. If you don't know what prayer walking is, it's praying while walking. <laughs> it's pretty simple. But I encourage you, if you don't know how to get involved in your neighbor's lives, if you don't know how to hear their stories of life change, the first thing is just be visible. Go for a walk. Be out. Almost every evening, you can catch me and my family at, at 6 o'clock walking down our street and walking back, um, all four of us with our popsicles and hands. <laughs> and we run into neighbors, and our neighbors know and can expect to see us. We are just visible. Just try, that's, that's the, so far that's what we do. And relationships are starting to happen, but those relationships don't happen overnight. So I encourage you to just be visible in your neighborhood. Walk your street, pray for the houses near you. And then the last one, I love this action step, do something, right? <laughs> just do anything. Your neighborhood is different. Your neighbors are different. I don't know what it's going to take for you to build a relationship with your neighbor, get to know your neighbor. Maybe it is bringing over a plate of cookies. Maybe it's inviting them over to watch a sports game. Maybe it's, I, I don't know what it is, but I'm asking you to do something. You might think to yourself, well, I'm afraid. I don't, what if they don't like me? They're having those same feelings. What if they're too busy? What if they don't want a friend or a neighbor? I promise you they're lonely. I promise you that they need more connections, that they're seeking this out. Pastor, some of my neighbors are jerks. I know. <laughs> I know. And God has put them in your way, so take it up with that guy, all right? So take it up with God. Because God has said, this is your neighbor. This is the person in your way. Love them. Love them. Find a way. Do something.